Hello and welcome to this week's Law in Sport podcast with me, Sean Cottrell, the founder and CEO of Law in Sport. In this week's show, I'll be speaking with Daniel G of Field Fisher Waterhouse and Trevor Birch of BDO about their joint report on financial fair play in football. The report provides a comprehensive overview of financial controls in the UK and UEFA competitions. You'll be able to get direct access to the report by clicking on the hyperlink below the podcast. I hope you enjoy the show. So we're here in BDO's offices for uh, a special interview with Daniel G and Trevor Birch. I'm sure that our, our listeners and readers know them very well. Uh, you know, they're very well known in, in the football industry and in sports or in accounting respectively. Guys, I wonder if you could just introduce yourselves uh, to give a bit of background about yourselves and your businesses. Daniel, Age you? before beauty, Trevor. Uh, well, I think so, go on. <laughs> Uh, so I'm Daniel G. I'm a lawyer at Field Fisher Waterhouse, um, and one of my special areas uh, is in sports law and in specifically um, the regulations. And in one specific aspects of the regulations, I advise um, a number of entities in relation to um, financial fair play and sustainability and cost control provisions. Okay, my name's Trevor Birch. Had a career of two halves, um, played professional football and was chief exec of a number of clubs. Um, now with BDO, um, heading up the uh, sports department, um, restructuring specialist as well. So I've done a couple of administrations recently, uh, being Portsmouth and Heart of Midlothian. Well, thanks for joining me today, guys, and uh, taking the time out. I'm holding, just so you can hear it, I'm holding in front of me. Uh, uh, a, a wonderful report that has uh, been put together by uh, you guys, um, Phil Fisher, Waterhouse and BDO, on financial fair play in football. And this is a term that's banded around a lot and often used in the wrong context. To start off with, can you just tell us, you know, one, why you put together this, this, this report and then explain what financial fair play is? So I'll go first, if that's all right, Trevor. Yeah, Carol. Um, I think primarily... The, the idea with putting the report together was that um, we'd seen lots of different and very good footballing finance reports um, detailing a number of interesting aspects of, um, of football and obviously one of the sports that we love um, the most. And I think one thing missing effectively from the, the, the landscape, I felt, was something which detailed a specific aspect of um, these type of FFP and cost control regulations that are obviously going to have and continue to have um, a huge impact on how the game has been run, the strategy of how football clubs um, are um, are actually running their clubs, and the effect and impact that the regulations are going to have uh, on the industry as a whole. So I think um, our intention was to put together um, an informative document that will appeal to, to beginners um, that want to know a bit of, uh, more about FFP, but also to um, the, the more seasoned clubs and associations and professionals who understand FFP and want to know some more of the, the detail behind the regulations. Yeah, I think uh, if you look at the suite of regulations, there is some subtle differences between them as well, which I think uh, is useful to get under one cover. If we look at UEFA through to Football League with the salary caps in Leagues 1 and 2 and then the financial fair play 
in the championship and then with the Premier League themselves not using the terminology financial fair play rather sustainability uh, I think it's it's very very useful to put it all under one cover and uh, and look at the subtle differences and so the key question is we've we've hit a difficult economic times of late and now the attention has been focused on football is this why those regulations were brought in how did they come about Trevor, I, I th- I'm mm. sure was intimately. Mm. I know was intimately involved in a lot of the the discussions at the time, and is is I'm sure will be able to explain some practical significance behind everything. But I think from a, a generic perspective, the idea was, and this is something that I don't think has come into the mainstream narrative, is that these different types of regulations are there to promote promote self sustainability and, in effect, for the long term health. The UEFA and the Premier League and the Football League would suggest for the long term health of the game rather than um, the idea of uh, improving competitive balance or improving the, the competitive landscape of domestic or European football. I'm, I, I'm not sure, what, I'm sure in a way um, Trevor certainly agrees with that approach and can probably shed some light more, more generally as well. Yeah, I suppose personally I, yeah, I, I could say I was responsible for the, uh, the genesis of these rules. In you got the, a lot to answer for. When we sold Chelsea to, uh, to Roman Abramovich and of course the Chelsea scenario followed by the Man City uh, situation led UEFA along with all the other losses that were being made by the various other European clubs but I think it was particularly the the oligarchs if you like and the the benevolent um, beneficiary ownership model which I think caused UEFA to, to look at the way they viewed football going forward and what was in the best interest of football and what they thought perhaps was going to sustain football going forward I and mean, when we can argue whether it actually achieves that, the, uh, the rules, but I think it was definitely a case of they felt they had to do something in the long-term interests of the game, in the interests of some of the clubs because they're community assets as well, they were being put in jeopardy by losses that were being made. Um, and the introduction of these rules, I think, was all about trying to create a long-term sustainable business model for football. And so I think you've alluded to it already. What are the key differences between uh, UEFA, the Premier League and the Championship in, you know, in particular? It's <laughs> <laughs> a good double act going yeah, on. Yeah, well, I, I think UEFA is a route. I think the primary difference with UEFA, obviously, is it only applies to the clubs that are in the European competition. So every year there's 231 uh, teams that will enter European competition. Uh, they are looking for clubs to fund their operations from their own revenues and very much very much wanted to be a break-even model um, in that the so-called deviations that are allowed the acceptable losses that are allowed over the next few years are quite severe Um, 45 million euros for this year but then moving to 30 million euros over a three-year period, so that's only 10 million of euros losses a, a, a season, compared to, say, the Premier League uh, sustainability rules, which will allow 
over a similar three-year period, £105 million. Now, what the Premier League, uh, the difference with the Premier League is that uh, in terms of the title, with it being sustainability provisions, they take the view that, well, if a owner is putting uh, funding into the club which is secure, then what is the problem with that? If somebody effectively wants to have a go, then why shouldn't they be allowed to do that within reason? And I think the, the reasonability of it is the 105 million losses over the three years, whereas UEFA, I think, is probably more uh, stricter and is, and is looking in the long term for clubs to break even. Now, whether they they will achieve that because obviously we're going to get some testing of the uh, the, the, the rules this season um, with the so-called we will come on to it but you know 76 clubs supposed to be in breach which has just been whittled down to 20 hardcore breaches um, but they, they have definitely given themselves a harder target and a harder um, set of provisions that, that, that they will need to try and implement. And I think the thing that, that strikes me about the regulations now and the regulations um, in, the, in the collective sense is that they're all different, it's, it's, it's a silly thing to say but quite a simplistic thing to say is they're all different in a number of quite uh, important ways and whereas now you could be a championship club um, being promoted to the Premier League then within one year you're effectively having to um, relate with two sets of rules and let's say you have a very good season and manage to win the League Cup or the FA Cup or manage to get into Europa League or Champions League competition within the space of two seasons you could be having to adhere to three different sets of regulations yeah. which is a burdensome uh, process um, at that and I think then um, you've got to have very savvy individuals at the clubs, the financial directors, the chief executives and the chairman and the board that are really understanding the detail of these regulations and I'm, I'm, I'm sure, I know that we hope that mm -hmm. this report will sort of be that first step towards um, having a collective understanding of how the different regulations you know, knit together. Yeah. It's, it, it seems to me that the, that it is, you know, the, the, it's not going to be, um, I'd love to get your interpretation on this, but it doesn't appear that they're going to be coming out full force and, and introducing really severe sanctions in the first instance as they realise that people are adjusting to, and, and, and that's been recognised in the slow introduction of these rules. And I believe they've gone out on consultation, and they have, it seems in, in your report you highlight this, it seems to be that they're, from the clubs in particular, there seems to be a willingness to adopt these yeah, I think both. I think both sides are in a learning process, you know, both from the regulatory authorities and the clubs themselves. And I suppose the key issue is: are the clubs going to embrace it? Are you know are they going to adhere to the spirit of the regulations rather than just the the the, the words? Um, can UEFA uh, apply the sanctions? Will the clubs allow themselves to be sanctioned? Because, of course, the ultimate sanction is for clubs to be, um, you know, ejected from the Champions League. And if you had three or four of the top clubs, would they really, you know, impose those sanctions? So I think there's a, there's a, and, and that's why there's an element of a softly, softly approach in terms of how, how they are going to deal with some of these initial breaches. 
and of course there's going to be ambiguity around the breaches as well. I mean that that so there's probably presumably will have to be some precedents that start to be built so that you can then get a little bit of case law that uh, that can be applied in these situations. I mean obviously the. You know, we'll come on to talk about it, but the related party transactions are obviously... Well, the, let's, the, let's the, talk the about it. Yeah, I, mean, they're, they're, <laughs> I think ultimately they are going to be the key issues, and we all know... So can you explain, so, so just so, for people who aren't that familiar with this... Okay, so, so, so the basic principle is clubs have to work within their own generated revenues and spend what they, they generate internally from the operations of the club. That can be artificially enhanced by transactions with so-called related parties related to the owners of the club so it's not just the owners themselves but perhaps uh, closely related parties who will enter into some form of sponsorship agreement or whatever which then enhances the revenues and allows the club then to spend more money than it would do if it just generated from its own resources. Uh, The difficulty will be in actually analysing those related party transactions because within a set of accounts that companies have to uh, to file related party transactions are, are dealt with by accounting standards and they are reported separately so if there has been a and transaction what, so these, related what are those accounting standards well it's it's you know, for us non-accountants, it's in international accounting standard. Oh, okay. I'm not orders, so I'm not sure <laughs> of the number, but it's in the twenties. Um, uh, but but and that will define what is a related party transaction, which is then therefore outside the normal trading of the business and has to be reported separately, so that anybody looking at the accounts can make their own judgment as to what. Uh, what, a, what a company can generate in it on its own terms rather than being en- artificially enhanced by a related party. So the accountant will pronounce on that. What UEFA are saying, is, and, and, and the Premier League, in terms of their rules, are accepting that if a transaction is reported as a related party transaction, then that has to be disclosed to the to the Premier League and will be treated as related party transaction. UEFA goes a little bit beyond that and, and, and says, and this is where it starts to get interesting, is that they will not be bound effectively by the reporting of a related party transaction by the auditors. Now, and, and, and therefore then they will look at the... Um, the substance over the over the form of, of the uh, transaction, and and therein will start to be some very interesting conversations. So when UEFA try to then challenge a club who has presumably had its trans- related party transaction signed off by its auditors, um, but the the UEFA decide well that's that's perhaps not quite in accordance with their view of the transaction. You'll get into some very interesting debate and discussion and we'll, we'll see in the next few weeks as to whether that is going to happen in, 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 the, uh, in the couple of scenarios that we know are going to uh, exist. So talking on that then, on the enforcement of this, what is the time frame, what are we working, what, what's you know, the introduction and then in the coming months what's going to happen? Well, um, very briefly, I mean, we had the, 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 the UEFA FFP regulations published in around May 2010. 
And then what happened, they said that um, for the 11-12 seasons accounts and the 12-13 seasons accounts will be based on then the, the break-even amount for the 13-14 season. And now that those two accounting seasons have been, um, 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 finances have been collected, we're now in a position in the coming weeks now where UEFA uh, will be coming to decisions on the potentially uh, um, affected clubs. The initial timeline was that um, decisions may be likely um, in the coming weeks of the last week of April, but it now looks likely that um, the decisions at least will be uh, published, i.e. on a headline level, um, on the from the around the first week of May. Um, the question then becomes, is, on a number of things, is will actually um, the, the full text of the decision be available? Will it just be uh, the headlines of particular clubs? The question remains on when the clubs will actually be told that they're fundamentally in breach as well uh, to enable them to be able to um, potentially challenge the, the decision. And there's also an interesting settlement provision um, in the procedures, um, which is effectively a plea bargain. Uh, which allows clubs to be able to settle for presumably um, a lesser sanction um, if they're found to be in breach. And the settlement provisions, I think it's Articles 15 and 16 of the procedural rules, were only published um, in the end of February of this year, and those procedures changed from what they were previously. And is this an adoption? Is it, are these adopted from competition law? Is this well, this is something you see in cartel cases. Very much so every day. So over the last two or three years, we've dealt with quite a lot of potential settlement decisions uh, or discussions with the European Commission or other authorities. Um, and those notices are 30, 20, 30 pages long, whereas uh, the UEFA procedural regs articles for 15 and 16 are, I think, four sentences. So I think just as what Trevor was saying, the, the interesting thing that will play out now is um, it will be really important to know how the settlement procedure will be used, uh, but also, as importantly, uh, how the sanctions will actually be imposed. The question for me isn't, will sanctions be imposed on clubs? Clubs in breach will be sanctioned. The question for me is what those sanctions will be. Mm. So will a 10 million euro loss mean expulsion from competition? I think it's less likely. Will a 100 million um, loss over an acceptable amount be likely to be expulsion? I think it's more likely that the higher the loss, uh, the more likely the, the severity of the sanction, the severity of the higher level sanctions will apply, and it will only be after a number of seasons, probably of mm. cases going to CAS, mm. uh, settlement cases um, occurring, will then clubs be able to understand that there's a benchmark approach to if you're making a certain loss, these are the likely sanctions that uh, that may be permitted. And just remind me again, will the settlement decisions be published? Well, that's the interesting yeah. question. I think um, my query is they will certainly be available, have to be available to interested parties because it might well be that there is a provision mm -hmm. in the regs that say interested parties can challenge the UEFA's decision to enter into settlement. So that decision will have mm -hmm. to be available to the parties, for example, that maybe have finished one or two places yeah. outside of European yeah. competition, because then they may feel that it hasn't been appropriate for UEFA to enter into settlement discussions, um, yeah. and they want to challenge that ability, because let's say a club is 100 million euros outside mm -hmm. of acceptable amount, UEFA enter settlement and say, well, we're just going to uh, reduce your squad size to 20 and yeah. give you a points deduction. 
if I was the club that finished sixth, I would say, well, we've adhered to the regulations. Yeah. We don't believe that UEFA should have entered into settlement procedures. And if they had been sanctioned effectively as they should have been, i.e. a ban, then we would have got into European competition, which yeah. could be worth you know significant sums for those Yeah, clubs. that's where it starts to get really interesting. I think the terminology they use is a directly affected party. So they don't define that. So that's going to be interesting in itself. And in fact, I think a league itself can make representations as well I don't mm. know whether you pick that one up as well as the clubs the league itself so presumably that will be a situation where a club might be um, presumably uh, ejected from a competition which could then affect the coefficients of a league yeah. so there would be presumably incentive for a league to make uh, representations in the, in the arbitration mm. so I think the the constituent parts are there for some really interesting uh, discussions to take place. Well, this yeah, this and this is you know it's come up in, in numerous talks that have been presentations have been shown in the last few weeks on various articles at the difficulty. Mm. Specifically, if you say if you take the FFP, then you take yeah. the the, regu- the Premier League regulations and then the Championship regulations yeah. and how those intertwine and the effect that yeah. has on the on distorting competition yeah. is a is a fascinating topic. Your, so your gut feeling is, sorry, how how serious is your way for taking this? I think, well, I mean, personally, I think they have to take it seriously now. They've invested so much time and effort into the whole, uh, whole suite of rules that they have to now see it through. The issue will be whether the clubs will play ball with them. And I suppose that's why UEFA have to take a bit more of a softly, softly approach rather than the heavy-handed approach because they do need the clubs to accept that they are going to be regulated in this way. And I think the other point mentioning, I think sometimes the very much short-term notion that FFP is only a success if clubs are sanctioned severely because of the breach is a bit of a misnomer as well. I think the if you look at the latest UEFA benchmarking report, for example, I think the two of the extremely positive things that come out of the report are that in the, I think, 11-12 season, yeah. club losses reduced by over 600 million euros in the space of one season. And we look at, there was another statistic which said that um, debts due to other clubs, to players and to the tax authorities reduced by over 70%. Yeah. So I think the, the good thing and the effect, effectively, regardless of what happens in the next few months now, is that there's... Um, a flight path, a better trajectory towards more rational spending in football, towards a greater sense of sustainability mm. and to a greater sense of rolling it, reining in rather um, the finances to ensure that clubs are on a more even, uh, on a more even footing. And forgive me, I should have probably touched on this earlier, but you just made me think of it. And that is the sustainability part of this. There are exclusions within all the regulations for, mm. for uh, money spent on certain activities. Mm. Can you just talk about what those what those are and some of the exemption exceptions in uh, UEFA regs and the yeah. Premier League? I think they're, they're they're common to all the regulations and 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 it's around youth development, infrastructure, and community expenditure. So any any expenditure on those three are are, are excluded from the calculation. So not obviously not wanting to inhibit clubs from developing talent, from spending it in the community and and improving stadiums uh, and training grounds. So they are excluded. Now again, that probably represents an area where uh, the spotlight might be focused on some of the expenditure that is put into those sort of categories. 
I mean, certainly when we look at the development that's going on around Man City, I mean, I think there's probably a huge, huge investment gone into that project. So um, whether UEFA start to, 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 to look at the, the intricate details of some of those payments, uh, again, remains to be seen. And I think the other point worth mentioning very briefly is we have, and the UEFA rules at least, um, the the last effectively the last clause of the entire regulations, which is Annex 11, um, which effectively sets out that contracts entered into before June 2010, which was the time that the the official initial regulations were published, um, the the cost of those contracts from the 11, 12, and 12, 13 seasons, or sorry, 11, 12 season, mm. but counts for different monitoring periods um, are excluded, and it's been um, it's been rumoured that those contract costs could be hugely significant mm. and add as a major um, discount amount to the actual yeah. headline club loss. And if, for example, you believe that you know one season, let's just say a wage bill of 100 million, has, a club has a wage bill of 100 million pounds, it could be anything up to 40 million pounds could actually be removed from yeah. the club's cost base because of those pre-2010 contracts. I think that's why it's very difficult to comment on some of the... Um the figures that have been reported so far because there are so many allowances that will be made before they actually strike the, the bottom line. And the thing that I've always said is anyone that is um, suggesting that they are that they know a club is going to be in breach or otherwise, unless they've had it leaked from UEFA, which I, 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 yeah. I have no idea here or there, um, isn't telling the truth because the only people that are going to know is UEFA and the clubs because um, it's not set out in the clubs um, filing a, a company's house mm. accounts what amount has been used for infrastructure, their pre-June 2010 mm. wage amounts and so people unfortunately at the moment are only able to speculate but as I said mm. the time is soon approaching where um, everyone will soon, soon know. Mm. Um, and the last I guess group of individuals that we haven't really discussed as I'm talking through this, we talk about obviously we talk about the governing bodies, mm-hmm. and, and we talk about the clubs. Is the players? Mm-hmm. How is this affecting the players? In term, and you know, in hard terms, you know, on the cash front, how is it affecting their salaries, and how is it affecting their remuneration packages? Mm-hmm. Just very briefly, I know that you, Trevor, you've got a yeah. shot. So. I mean, you would think from some of the headline numbers that we've seen bandied around, uh, Wayne Rooney being one of them at £300,000 a week, that it's not having that much of an impact, certainly at the, at the, at the top level. I think where it's, I suppose the Premier League with its short-term sustainability provisions in terms of the cap that it's putting on the actual uh, increase in the salaries that can be paid from the new TV deal, which is four million a year over the next three years, um, that will have a a, a dampening effect. I'm, I'm absolutely certain of that. So we will see. I don't think we'll see the exponential growth that perhaps we've seen previously. And as we've just discussed in terms of that benchmarking report, I think throughout Europe, uh, clubs are are definitely being a little bit more cautious in in either a the size of their squads being a little bit more selective in terms of uh, having some stars alongside some of the younger players as well so there's a, there's a balancing effect going on there so there will be a it will act as a dampening effect on overall salaries 
and of course it's being challenged by uh, the, the, the Belgian Stirling. yeah, yeah. agent for, for, for that very reason that's one of the reasons he's citing is that it will uh, restrain player wage growth and I think the other thing worth mentioning as well is and I'm sure a number of other sports lawyers and football lawyers will probably concur is that we're seeing a sort of growth a growth of more incentivized incentivized based contracts performance based it's always been the case but um, you look at Barcelona's model, which has now been embraced by Man City, with Serrano now um, heavily involved in um, the administration of Manchester City, is that we're seeing a move maybe towards two-thirds um, fixed and one-third variable um, in terms of wages. And then the players are obviously getting um, um, a revenue benefit if the club is successful um, on the pitch. And it is that type of sustainable approach which is if the club is benefiting getting larger revenues from finishing higher in the league the Champions League uh, runs getting to the finals winning winning important matches uh, that both go hand in hand rather than for example players being on very high wages but then getting relegated from the Premier League without there being relegation reduction clauses and those type of things so I think clubs are becoming and have for a while now become uh, are being more yeah. savvy in their um, in their approach to to their cost base. Definitely, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you guys for taking the time to talk with us. Um, you just highlighted how much of a complex issue it is, and how needed your report is, and how useful it can be. So, where can people get hold of it? Obviously, we'll put a link at the bottom of the uh, of the podcast, so you can pick it up from there. Um, it will be on the, I presume it's on the Phil Fisher website and the BDO yeah. website, on their sports pages. Um, Daniel, you can, is always tweeting relentlessly about uh, financial fair play issues on Twitter at Football Law. Mm. Um, and if you have any questions, drop us an email uh, and we'll uh, try and answer those as best we can. And, and uh, thank you for tuning in. Okay, pleasure. Thanks. Thank you.